I'm going to give you some fresh thoughts. Fresh doesn't always mean great. They're just fresh, like sushi's fresh, you know. Some people love it. Now, like just things that have been like brewing and not everything that brews inside of you is, is like, like should actually be said out loud. Um, but occasionally I just give it a whirl. <laughs> um, but uh, it's going to be good. I believe uh, there's two things in worship. Um, encounter and decision. I believe both are available to you tonight. Revelation 5, if you'll go there. Encounter. I sincerely believe the presence of the Lord um, uh, it, it, not just here, he's always here, but um, being released in such a way that, that those who will um, be open have an encounter. I think the most important thing we're going to do tonight is come to the table. Um, I'm just the preliminary uh, movement that, that gets you ready for the table. And I want, I, want to make, I want to try to connect some dots for you in such a way that when we come to the table, you'll see some connection to what happens and how we, by faith, approach this table and what power is available for us. Um, but it's going to take me a little bit to get there, and I'm going to do my best to try to draw some connections with some dots. That's what I mean by fresh, is like, they're out there, and I can see them. We'll see if I can articulate them. Um, before we jump into Revelation 5, um, a very important book in my life uh, was um, A.W. Tozier's book, The Pursuit of God, very instrumental in my life. Um, I was in a season of grappling with my vocation as a uh, young adult and not sure if this whole ministry thing was my jam. Um, <laughs> to be honest, kind of wanting to do something else. Um, but um, Tozier spoke with such fervor and passion and commitment um, that this book, The Pursuit of God, ended up being um, instrumental in a major turning point of my life where I just surrendered to whatever the Lord's call was on my life. And um, an important statement from this book, Tozer says this, a spiritual kingdom lies all about us, enclosing us, embracing us, all together within reach of our inner selves, waiting for us to recognize it. God himself is here waiting for our response to his presence. This eternal world will come alive to us the moment we begin to reckon upon its reality. We live in and from another reality entirely. The kingdom of God. This was Jesus's message it was not about where you go when you die. It's about God's space taking over our space. Through his action, words, his sacrifice, his life, his death, his resurrection. The kingdom of God is not something for another time and place. It's present. And it is alive to us in our inner man. The presence of God is readily available for anyone and everyone. But Will we have eyes to see it? Will we have ears to hear it? Will we become present 
to the presence of God in such a way to draw on that reality. And what Tozier's saying is, is all of it is right here. It's closer than inside of you. Like it's, it's between the molecular structure of every atom of the universe. It's, it's more present than what presence is. But, it's, but God himself is waiting for us to recognize it, to be available to that reality, to be open to that reality, to have eyes to see it and ears to hear it and a heart ready to be a recipient and a vehicle for that reality. Because our objective is to live that reality here on earth as in heaven. It's what Jesus said to pray and we're to live in such a way to not just pray it, but to also be an answer to that prayer. And I've been just, there's a couple words very strong on my heart for this year. And I'm just, I'm just grappling with the Lord on what, what it means. And this, this weekend, I'm going to start a series on one of them. One, one that I feel very strong about in this season is the presence of the Lord. Understanding the presence of the Lord and like, what do we have if we're, if we're not encountering God's presence? Like, what, what are we doing? Um, if Jesus is mere philosophy, then this is all pointless, like, like we have to recognize the reality of his presence and live in such a way that we pursue it passionately and wholeheartedly. But another layer of that that I've just been meditating on is what it means to bear God's image and what it means that he calls us priests. Because that sounds a, that's a weird word. We don't use that word. We don't have priests anymore except like in the Catholic church. Um, like we just, we don't have an understanding of that anymore. And so um, what it means to bear God's image in being his, his, a kingdom of priests, his priests, um, it has to do with representation and ruling. Representation and ruling. And as I've been just meditating on this, I've been wanting to see all the different connections in Scripture of, of what it means for us to fulfill that vocation of being a kingdom of priests. And here in Revelation... Um, we're not talking about end times, just in case that was on your mind, okay? Um, we're not going to talk about all the imagery here, all the metaphor, all the uh, allegory, all the different types and shadows and pictures and all that. I just want you to see one scene and then draw some connections on what it means to live out what we're seeing in a scene like this. In Revelation chapter 5, look at verse 6. This is John talking in the first person. And I, John, looked, and he's, 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 he's got this open vision of the heavenly realm, specifically the throne room of the Most High. So he's looking into the throne room of God. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb. Stood, okay, so hone in on a few words. Stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Having, this is where it gets weird. Having seven horns and seven eyes. That's not weird to you? Like, again, it's full of poetic metaphor and uh, and like John's weirded out by this whole thing too. And so he's just doing his best to like, 
I don't know how to say it, except there were seven horns and seven eyes. And then he, he like gives some interpretation, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. I don't have time to like talk about each of those pictures, just eyes in, in this poetry uh, has to do with uh, being able to see um, and uh, specifically being able to see by the Holy Spirit. There isn't seven spirits of God, like like seven different spirits. It's, it's a way of saying the spirit of God um, and there's seven manifestations of that. You can cross-reference that with Isaiah 11. Um, again, for another day. Then he, the lamb, so you have a lamb that looks like it has been slain, but is standing. So alive, but had been slain. And so this is, this is a way of seeing John is seeing in this imagery Jesus as the Lamb of God that was slain but has been raised. So alive, resurrected, but the, 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 the ability to see his atoning death was still visible. Okay, yeah, it's, it's difficult, I get it, but we're going we're gonna to get to the good part. Verse 8, now when he, the slain standing Lamb, had taken the scroll, which is a there's seven scrolls and they all mean something and no one is worthy to take the scroll except this slain lamb. Um, When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. So he'd just been introduced to the 24 elders, 12 representing the old covenant people of God and 12 representing the new covenant people of God. So this is the old and new covenant people of God all being represented at the throne. Is that... With me? Still pictures. But so this is the people of God, old and new, in the throne room. And when the Lamb received the scroll, those 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. And it, like homage, uh, worship, surrender. And as they fell down, it says, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense. And then another little giving a little picture as to, okay, well, what this means, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, so they they have fallen down in worship with a harp, best like John's understanding of a musical instrument. There wasn't like tons of, you know, there weren't six string guitars, like that he would know what that even looks like. So this is in a way saying like worship and in worship to music and prayer. So prayer and worship. And in that prayerful worship, they're singing this new song of honor. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. So not going line by line, image by image, the scene I I want you to see how this, what's going on is that Jesus in his sacrifice and victory So both held together. His death and resurrection were seen kind of together in this image of the slain lamb that was standing, so raised. So Jesus, 
in his sacrifice, his death, and his resurrection, when that is seen, there is surrender and worship, and that worship is giving him honor and bringing before him in that worship all the prayers of the saints. The the Lord hears your prayers. They're brought before him in worship. It just outright says it. You don't have to like go searching all the Old Testament to find all this. He says, this bowl of incense, it was weird to us. We don't know what that looks like. But whatever it is, it is the prayers of the saints. It's the people of God are in the throne room of God, worshiping, bringing worship and music and honor and praise and prayer. And they're acknowledging that it was you who was slain and you have redeemed us. You have redeemed us. I just, redemption, my goodness. You You need to be around newly saved people. And like, not the like semi-religious that like said yes to Jesus. That's people like me. Like, <laughs> like I grew up in the church. I, I'm talking about the people who like, like the sinners. <laughs> who get radically saved for Jesus. They understand redemption. That's why Pharisees just, they, I just don't know about them. And if you and if you if you insulate yourself too much with just people who are just like you and who've been saved as long as you, you forget what redemption is. You actually start thinking more about yourself than the people that are lost and dying. So, oh man, don't don't lose. Just you've redeemed us. You've redeemed us from a life of death. You've redeemed us from a life of slavery. You've redeemed us from the flames of hell, from slavery to the devil that despises us. And seeing Jesus as he is should bring that that immediate response, like the natural response for seeing Jesus as he is, is to fall down in worship and offer all of our prayers and worship to him. And acknowledge, you're the only worthy one. And you, you were slain for all of us who were not worthy. You redeemed us. Not by our own merit, but by your own character and love. And because of that redemption, I now have a new identity. Kings and priests reigning on the earth. And I think there's just, we're in a moment, the season, where it's absolutely imperative for the people of God to understand who we are and what we have and what we're called to do. And to do it without self-righteousness, without selfish motive or ambition, but solely for the glory of the name of Jesus. That what it means to be a kingdom of priests who reign on the earth. And, and most of us are just have distracted ourselves into boredom where our, you know, biz, biggest concerns are our disgruntled boss, our, 
late package from Amazon and our coffee that's not the right temperature. Like, that's like our biggest concerns in life right now. I'm, 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 that's, that's probably more sarcastic than I should be. It isn't to say that there aren't genuine things you're going through or, or real struggles. So I don't want to make light of that. I'm saying we don't know who we are. We don't know who Christ is in us and who we are in Christ. And then what that means for what we're called to. And called to being selfish and stupid is like, that's not what we're called to. We're called to reign on earth. Not reign one day, but for now, we're just going to bide our time and hopefully make it to the end. And I'm just absolutely done with this pandemic. Just done with it. Not, not that I was necessarily tolerating it before, but... but um, but I, I, want, I want us to see just that, that one thing, but I want you to see the things that are associated with that. Um, and I, I need you to not see this through a political lens, okay? Because I, I, I don't have, I, I promise you, I have, I'm not saying anything political, what I, what I want to show you and talk about today. Um, because... Um, The moment we are offered is that, that the people of God should be able to walk in something that medicine cannot give us. And it's, and it's not because, it's just simply because I believe we're not walking in maturity, in humility, and understanding who we are and what we have in Christ. Okay? And, and, and I need you to keep this image in your mind as I trace a few things for you. Keep this image of your mind that the, the, the prayers of the saints, the worship of the saints, when we see Jesus, when we see who he is and what he's done and what that has meant for us, that's important because seeing Jesus sometimes isn't as easy as we think it is. And we have to get clearer and clearer picture and we never need to assume we understand this. The cross and resurrection, never get to a point that you think you understand it. That doesn't mean you know nothing. It just means whatever you know, there's more, okay? So seeing Jesus, the, the immediate response is falling down in worship and saying only you are worthy. And because of your redemption, it has changed my identity and my vocation, kings and priests, kings and queens, which is simply restoring back Genesis 1, 26 to 28, okay? But... For another deep dive, this is more preaching than teaching on this one, okay? So keep this in your mind, all right? Now, I want you to go to the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 17. Sorry, number 16. It's the end of 16, so my eyes were on chapter 17. You know what? You don't need an excuse. I was wrong. It's chapter 16. All right, so... You got like so many stuff, so much stuff in the Old Testament, types and shadows and pointing in the direction. And so I, I want you to see just one thing here, one thing mainly. There's many things, but one thing mainly. Okay, so the scene is Israel is being an idiot again, like again and again and again. That's what numbers is. It's like, we're going to walk and we're going to complain. And then we're going to walk some more and complain. Like that's the cycle. 
And on this particular cycle, there was a Levite, Korah, who convinced um, a couple clans from the tribe of Reuben, Dathan and Abiram, that who does Moses and Aaron think they are? They're not the priests. Anybody can do this. And so, like, we deserve it. Like, we're going to do our own thing, and we're going to kick you out. And Moses is like, don't be stupid. (laughs) And they were stupid. Um, And so God's like, all right, we're going to show you what's going on. Because remember, this is the covenant people of God. So God operates within the confines of his covenant. All right? So this is not a statement about God's character for everybody. It's about God's character as it's revealed in that specific covenant. Okay? And that covenant was made just in like a couple books before. Okay? So that's the context here. And um, Moses intercedes for the people. He's like, hey, God, um, we shouldn't all die for that guy being an idiot. And God's like, all right, separate yourself. And so they separate these, the, these clans with their tents, separate. And Korah and the Levites come to the temple. And Moses says, all right, if these guys die like any normal man, then yeah, we're not, we're not of God. But if something new happens... Uh, they were wrong. And fire from the tabernacle comes out and consumes all, it consumes them. Doesn't just like kill them, consumes them. The Korah and the earth opens up and swallows Dathan and Abiram. That's a new thing. Wouldn't you, like that's new, Right. So it's blatantly obvious who's in the wrong, okay? So that happens, day's over, foof, only those people got it out. Verse 41. (laughs) On the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron saying, oh, you have killed the people of the Lord. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Now it happened, (laughs) this is so great, I love storytelling. Now it happened when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron that they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting and suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of Yahweh appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting and Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, get away from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. Remember, this is the covenant people of God. So God is working within the confines of his covenant. All right. He doesn't say this about any nation and anybody. This is his people who are rebelling against him and complaining. Okay. And it says, Moses, and they fell on their faces. So Moses said to Aaron, take a censer, a bowl, and put fire in it from the altar. Put incense on it and take it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from Yahweh. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the assembly. And already the plague had begun among the people. So he put the, in the, so he put in the incense and made atonement for the people 
and he stood between the dead and the living, so the plague was stopped. Okay. Old covenant. God's people being really good at what they're good at. Being terrible. Like complaining and selfish, okay? And so within the confines of that covenant, God is releasing consequences to that complaint. Okay? And in that covenant, remember Exodus 19, God wanted all the people to be priests, to be a kingdom of priests, Exodus 19, verse 4-ish, 3 through 6. To be all the people be a kingdom of priests. But Israel's response to that was, no thanks. Moses, you go up and we'll do what you say. <laughs> we'll, we'll do what you say. Never happened. <clears throat> so at that point, God's covenant people, all were supposed to be priests, but God's covenant people said no. So God made a concession within the covenant to have a smaller group of people be a representation of him for the people, the priests. N- initially with Moses, and then God appointing the tribe of Levi, specifically the family of Aaron, to be the high priest. And so now the priests who stand in the presence of the Lord see a problem in the people that they deserved. And Moses tells Aaron, take a bowl, for lack of a better term, put fire from the altar and put incense on it and take it amongst the people. And when Aaron did it, it said, he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stopped. Fire from the altar represents the Holy Spirit. Because if you trace the links all the way through the old covenant, you see what happens in Acts chapter two when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost is a mirror image of what the tabernacle and the temple was. God's presence and his fire came down on the tabernacle and the temple and that represented the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. You with me? And then that was conferred onto all the people of God. Acts chapter two. So they became the new temple and they had the fire represented by by little flames of fire on every one. So the Holy Spirit on their life is what the fire in the old covenant was. Ironically, maybe not ironically, as it is stated, God provided the fire the priests kept it burning. That fire could have died out, but the priests were responsible for kindling the fire, okay? So the fire represents the Holy Spirit's um, manifestation of the presence of God, okay? Before the tabernacle, um, and even during the wilderness wanderings, it was the cloud that covered the day and the fire by night. And then when God took residence into the tabernacle, it was the fire of the altar. With me? And the incense was, okay. You already know what the incense is. I just read it to you. It's the prayers of the saints. And so the fire of the Holy Spirit and the prayers of the saints 
get taken into the people where a plague is broken out and the fire and the incense, the Holy Spirit presence and the prayers of the saints goes into the plague and the plague stops because the presence of the Holy Spirit and the prayers of the saints stand between the dead and the living. And so we cannot take lightly what it means to be called a priest. We're called to go into the people and stand between death and the people of God. And that's not something for pastors to fly solo on. If you're a king or queen and a priest, if you're a kingdom of priests, then what the, what the responsibility of the Holy Spirit and power and presence of God on your life and your prayers are to go into the problem, are to go into the plague and stand between death and the living. And what is represented here between dead people and living people, now Jesus is that atonement. Because again, Moses said, go make atonement for them. We don't do that anymore. Our high priest has done that for us. And because our high priest was the lamb that was slain and is living again. And that lamb that was slain and raised is now in us where we go. We bring atonement, not us, Christ in us. We're not worthy of anything, but Christ is in us. And when we have the fire of the Holy Spirit, and that's not like some Pentecostal metaphor for passion, okay? Because you know what I'm talking about, the fire. Like you can't say that and just say fire of the Holy Spirit. It's gotta be fire. Like whatever drama you can add to that. that's not, that, we're not just talking about like being passion, extra passionate, okay? There are some of us that you just are not going to be that way. <laughs> no, the, 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 the fire represents that, the tangible, the, 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 the flame of God that emits heat and light. Like our lives are to bring heat and light into a dark and cold world. And so when we see Jesus, the lamb that was slain, and see him in us, we, in recognizing the fire of God's presence that is available for our life, when we nurture that awareness of God's presence, the spiritual reality that is already all around you, in you, within you, everywhere, but you become awake to that reality, that fire, that presence is something you possess, not like you control it. It's you, you, you are a vessel for it. And your prayers are an incense that all of that together, atonement, presence, and prayers goes into death and stops death. It, it, it stands between the dead and the living. And that's what I think this moment is that what, what a, a, a plague has just consumed the world and made everybody terrified is still an opportunity for us to go into it and stand between death and the living. Even when the living deserve it. We stand between 
the death of sickness and the living. You can't. It will kill you. But you have been raised to new life and that new life is Christ in you. And Christ in you cannot be touched by death. He's already defeated it. Matthew chapter eight. This is anybody that tells you Jesus did not deal with sickness and that Isaiah 53 verse four, five. Isaiah 53, five, that says that he bore by his wounds, we are healed. He bore our iniquities. That, that, that is just, oh, well, that's just talking about spiritual sickness or disease. Tell that person, uh, well, what I was originally gonna say, you can't say out loud, but tell that person they're wrong. They're, they're sadly mistaken. Jesus right here, look at this. Um, uh, Matthew 8, verse 14. Now, when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her and she arose and served them. Then verse 16, look at this. When evening had come, they brought to him all who were demon possessed and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed, how many? All All who were sick. All who were sick. How did he do it? With a word and healed all who were sick. And look at this that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. The lamb of God that was slain, who defeated death and was raised again. Part of being slain is taking death and all of his friends with him into death. Sickness and disease. Mental, physical, all the above. Anxiety, depression, COVID-19, cancer, all that. He took it into death with him. And his atonement isn't just for the forgiveness of sins. It's for the forgiveness of sins and the healing of our bodies and minds. So his atonement isn't just a spiritual reality. It's a spiritual reality that has natural consequences. And if I am suffering sickness that Jesus suffered for me, one of those is not necessary. And there's the word of God that says he bore that for me. So it's not necessary. And I have to kind of, I need to lace this with a little bit of pastoral understanding that like, yes, we all struggle. Yes, we all go through stuff. And yes, many people have lost loved ones this year to this. And and there's some answers, but honestly, answers don't go very far when you're in the middle of deep sorrow and grieving. You just need comfort. And there's the comfort of the Holy Spirit in the midst of all this too. But I am saying, we're still alive. What do we do about this? And what I believe is there's still an opportunity. Let me also say this, okay, because I was thinking this and I'm glad it came back to my memory. Um, In that story, Old Covenant, God released the consequences to their sin, okay? Old Covenant. We have a new covenant. So any plague, virus, disease, or whatever is not 
definitively with certainty, not the judgment of God. Okay? That is not what's happening now. So no sickness, no disease, no infirmity, no tragedy is God teaching you a lesson. Okay? So, so we are to go into death. Like we're to go into the areas and the people that are suffering and stand between death and the living. Stand between fear and anxiety and the living. Sickness and disease in the living. How do we stand with that kind of authority? You have to know who Jesus is. Because you will just get chewed up and spit out. You have to know who's in you in that space. Uh, I got, I just, entertain me for just just maybe three-ish minutes. Um, Quickly go to Matthew 17. You're already in Matthew. Uh, Matthew 17. I'm just going to read quickly. Uh, Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And when they had come to the multitude, Jesus, uh, Peter, James, and John. So Jesus, a man came to him, Jesus, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, huh, oh, oh, faithless and perverse generation. By the way, he's talking to his disciples, not the father. Okay. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why can we not cast him out? Cast it out. So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Hold that for just a second. And let me read Mark's account of this story to just show you a few extra little details that he, that helps see the story kind of well-rounded. Um, Mark 9, verse 17, I'm gonna read in the ESV. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, this is like, this is the, there, there's the firm side of Jesus and there's the tender side of Jesus. I don't see the tender side of Jesus with his disciples except at the very end. <laughs> like, like John 13 is the most tender you get from Jesus with his disciples, but he's very tender with people. <clears throat> he said, how long has, he, has this been happening to him? And the father said, from childhood, and it, and it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can. Did you see it? He's quoting him. If you can, like, I w- that's an appropriate place for, come on, man. <laughs> All things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, 
he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and the boy, and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Okay, see these together real quick. Jesus said, faith will rebuke this and it will move. Your unbelief is keeping you from doing that, which let's just give the disciples credit. They often look like idiots in these stories, but you got to see the good stuff. They didn't get mad and get offended and walk away of how rude Jesus is. They came to him privately and just said, hey, we want to know. Like, well, how come we couldn't do this? So like, it's just like when you and I do really dumb stuff and try to act all big and we look stupid, let's not get offended at God. Let's privately go to Jesus and like, okay, so help me out. Like how, how did I, why, why not me? Um, and Jesus says, your unbelief. He called him faithless. Well, your unbelief did this. You got, nothing's gonna be impossible for the person who believes and give the father credit. I believe Lord, oh, but obviously I've got some stuff blocking the power, help my unbelief. And Jesus said, after saying like, nothing will be impossible to you. This kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. Let me give you two layers of this. The first layer is I don't, you've, you've probably heard it said. If not, like at least know this. Jesus is talking about that kind of unbelief gets cast out through prayer and fasting. And this is part, but, but, but let me say he actually can mean both, but I don't want you to think the legalistic quid pro quo kind of religion that often is said, no, you have to pray and fast enough until you deserve getting that kind of power. That's not, that's not, that's not what's going on here. So he's saying praying and fasting will cast out that kind of unbelief because unbelief is what's getting in the way of you walking in the power. But if you notice, Jesus did not pray and fast when it came to rebuking that demon. It says he did it with a word. He rebuked him. The demon recognized the authority of Jesus. I went more than three minutes. One more minute. But what prayer and fasting in casting out unbelief is you come to a place where you recognize Jesus in you and the Jesus in you has the authority to command unclean spirits to be removed. The Jesus in you has already made atonement for sickness and disease. So the Jesus in you has the power to heal the sick with a word. Because Jesus, I, this is, you could do a study on this. It, it, it's, it's, it's hard to notice this. Jesus doesn't pray for the sick. He lays hands on them and they're healed. That means he has, he has spent sufficient time in prayer and fasting, communing with his father in such a way to understand the power that he has and operates in perfect faith so that in the moment, he doesn't necessarily pray for it. He just speaks the reality that he's already aware of. And he is in us. And that's what like, gosh, I see such incongruency in my own life. 
that I do better talking about this than living this some days, you know? <laughs> that I tolerate sickness and disease. I tolerate anxiety and fear in me. And like, I have, I'm speaking with such conviction about this, knowing I screw this up all the time. Like I'm done with myself most days. Like I'm tired of me a lot. You say me too? <laughs> you could be tired of me. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> if my wife would have said that, that'd have been different. She actually, yeah. <clears throat> but, you, but like, so, so this whole thing about constantly just seeing how many cases there are every day, how many, oh, we broke another record today. Oh, we broke another record. Yeah, death is winning and who's going to stand up to it? The people who will understand who Jesus is and who he is in them and actually be a priest to stop whining about what I'm not getting and do the hard work of going into the, the problem and stand in between death and the people who deserve it. Because it was Jesus that redeemed you by his blood and he redeemed them by his blood and you are supposed to represent him to them. Stop being annoyed by lost people. Stand between death and them. Stand between their sin and them. Stop holding their sin to their account when Jesus freely forgave it. You're, when, you, when you hold unforgiveness, you're holding a debt Jesus already forgave. You're to priest, you're to be a priest for your enemy. The people who hate you. Jesus says, pray for them and bless them. Stand in between death and them. And this, this I, I call this laboring in prayer because I'm finally getting to my point just a little after my time. <laughs> let, me, let me show you an obscure verse. I told you, I'm going to try to draw these connections, but I'm going to show you this obscure verse. But I want you to keep all this in mind that I've said. Look at Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. This is in the boring part of Colossians that we skip through to make sure we get our reading plan done. Because it doesn't say anything important, right? Just going through the Tychicus and Aristarchus, and we don't know who these people are. And so like, yeah, they're cool people, whatever. And then he says this, verse 12. Colossians 4, verse 12. Epaphras, or Epaphras, I don't know how to say a Greek name, so one of those. Who is one of you? A bondservant of Christ. He greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. And what is he praying? That you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Let me, let me read this in, in passion. This is a little bit more like a paraphrase, so... Just don't get upset about this. Just help you see what, what's going on. Epaphras, or Epaphras, who is also from Colossae, sends his loving greetings. I can tell you that he is a true servant of Christ who always labors and intercedes for you. His prayers are filled with requests to God that you would grow and mature, standing complete and perfect in the beauty of God's plan for your lives. So kind of all that I'm saying about being a priest 
And we have this tiny one verse little window into someone who otherwise is not named. We don't know this person in history, but heaven has recorded his name. And what does Paul point out about this individual? That he carries you, the church. Labor, there's two, uh, two pictures here in that word labor. It, one is an athletic connotation. It's a wrestling. It's a contending. It is a warfare. He is fighting warfare for you in his prayers. And the other one is pregnancy. He has you in his heart. He wants maturity and, and um, growth and maturity. And he's laboring like childbirth for that. Galatians chapter four, verse 19, Paul, and it's sort of a weird image, um, says, I, I'm, I'm laboring for you like a woman in childbirth with childbirth pains until Christ is formed in you. Like who are we carrying close to our heart that we're laboring for in prayer so that they might know Jesus, so that they might grow and mature, standing in the stature of Christ, walking in the maturity that comes from knowing him, standing in their identity and their vocation, the victory they've been given in Christ, but they haven't been able to see yet. They're not walking in because of unbelief. That our prayers and our fasting is not trying to twist God's arm. It's trying to reveal to us the areas that we've been selfish and self-centered and, and focused on me instead of carrying people, not just the people of God, but my enemies as a priest and offering that bowl, those prayers, that bowl of incense that makes it all the way to the throne of God. And that prayer, that laboring in prayer is standing death off. He wouldn't say that if it's not effective in doing something. Your prayers can keep death at bay, can keep sickness and disease at bay, can keep fear and anxiety at bay, can keep shame at bay. I've also, I told you, I'm all, I'm all over the place here, but like I, I, I picture the story in Luke 15, um, the prodigal son, that, that, that when, the, when the prodigal came to his senses and he was coming home, the father was looking for him and ran to him. But the brother just didn't care. And then when he came, he just like, I, you're, I, I cannot believe he's offended at God. He's offended at the father. And I imagine that so many Christians are just, we're just trying to do what we're supposed to do. We're out in the fields doing what we were last told to do. Not caring about our prodigal brothers and sisters because we've got a job to do and I'm the good one and everybody else is doing their own thing and getting their own way. But I've got to do what I got to do and I got to obey God because I got to obey God because no one else is doing it. And all of them are stupid and idiots and voting for the wrong people and believing the wrong lies and giving in to the corruption. All of them, they're the bad ones. I'm the good one. And miss our brothers and sisters coming home. In a sense, it's like the father was interceding for the son. And because of that laboring in prayer, because of that intercession, he had eyes to see that when the prodigal just gave him a chance, he took because he was ready for it. Are we ready for lost people? Are you mad at them? Are you ready for, for people who don't know Jesus to just kind of, sort of, just a little bit, give them a chance, but because you've labored for them in prayer, you have eyes to see that chance and you're gonna seize it. 
You're gonna run and embrace him. Embrace that person you've been praying for. To be able to say, welcome home and mean it. Because you've labored for them in prayer. The church has to develop the womb for prayer that, that, that is incense, to labor in that incense, not trying to get God to do something that he's already done, but by bringing them before him and our surrender and worship, we're ready to stand as Jesus stood and stand between death and the living. 